The Phase 1 trade agreement has officially been in effect for six months. The deal was supposed to help put the bilateral relationship back on track after years of escalating tit-for-tat tariffs. But those six months since the White House signing ceremony haven't been a honeymoon by any stretch of the imagination. While the ink was still wet on the deal, a novel coronavirus was spreading in China and unknowingly the world, eventually tanking the market and making the purchases agreement seem even more unattainable. But the agreement is about a lot more than just buying a lot of soybeans. In a heated political environment, it's hard to know where exactly the deal stands. To find out, I spoke with some of my colleagues here at the U.S.-China Business Council. I also spoke with Claire Reed, who has years of experience negotiating trade policy with China as a former assistant U.S. trade representative for China Affairs at USTR. From the U.S.-China Business Council in Washington, D.C., I'm Aaron Slauson, and this is the China Business Review. First, let's talk about the financial services commitments. Allison Schonberg covers this portfolio here at USCBC. The financial services chapter is essentially about opening China's financial services sector to foreign companies across multiple subsectors. So those include electronic payments, futures, securities, credit rating, asset management, which is basically the purchase of distressed assets, and insurance. So in terms of implementation, we've seen pretty substantial evidence of progress. The first is that as you probably know, equity caps for futures, securities, fund management, as well as life, health, and pension insurance have all been raised to 100% through various government announcements. Um, I believe two actually happened before phase one negotiations were even completed. And about two months ago, China released its 2020 negative list for foreign investment, which made these commitments even more formalized. Then pretty recently, China just satisfied its phase one commitment to offer fund custody service licenses to local branches of U.S. financial institutions and take their overseas assets into consideration, which is a really good move. Then one other thing I'd note is that over the past few months, we've seen several majority and wholly foreign owned companies come forward in securities, futures, e-payments, credit rating, and asset management, basically across a, the whole range of subsectors in financial services. Jack Kamensky has been following the agriculture portfolio for us. What was the section about? So the agriculture section was one of the longest sections and includes a lot of detailed commitments on market access barriers that had been plaguing U.S. companies for, for years in some cases. A lot of China's commitments in the agriculture section were front-loaded, and a lot of progress has been made here. We've seen market openings in a number of areas, beef, pork, poultry, seafood, as well as regulatory streamlining, especially in, in the registration of uh, U.S. agriculture facilities, which allows uh, you know U.S. producers to export more to China. From our conversations with U.S. trade officials, we understand the key focus now is uh, revisions to the regulatory approval process for agricultural biotech imports. So we, un we understand that the two sides are engaged in technical discussions. Next, I talked to my colleague Pearson Goodman to check in on IP commitments. The IP section differed from the other two in that deadlines for specific commitments were not part of the phase one deal itself. Instead, China released an IP action plan in April. The plan is a much more detailed blueprint for meeting not just phase one obligations, but also just general IP issues in China. And I think that's kind of been a big pattern in how they've approached this is that they've actually gone above and beyond their phase one IP commitments because reforming their IP system is something that is a priority domestically as well. 
So the IP chapter really covered the whole range of IP issues. So that includes patents, copyright issues, trademark issues, trade secret issues, and then as well as some issues in the actual enforcement of judicial decisions and other sort of um, procedural issues. For patents, you know, this is a big issue for a lot of our pharmaceutical companies, especially. I'm a little biased towards this because I also cover our healthcare portfolio, but there were some really positive decisions around patent term extension and patent linkage, which are things that our innovative drug companies rely on to get their drugs to market. Another big issue is uh, trademark. This is something that, you know, it's a very classic example. Everyone in their trips to China will go to the silk market and get whatever fake contraband with uh, all sorts of brands. And so commitments to crack down on physical markets with illicit goods was was one of the big trademark-related commitments. And finally, trade secrets. Um, And so there were a lot of uh, language around trade secret protection in the Phase 1 deal. So that's increasing who's liable for stolen trade secrets, lowering the threshold for who can be prosecuted for trade secret misappropriation, and things to that nature. Since then, they've been addressing their commitments through mainly two measures. So one is through revisions to actual existing laws. So we've seen revisions to the patent law, and to the copyright law. Earlier last year, there were revisions to the unfair anti-unfair competition law, which addresses trade secret concerns. Um, as well as with to the trademark law. So through these amendments, they've been addressing some of the more systemic and structural phase one commitments that they made. Um, but on the other hand, some of their commitments were a little bit more specific, uh, maybe not deserving of you know enshrinement in a law, but still worth addressing. And so to address a lot of these issues, the Supreme People's Court or the Chinese National Intellectual Property Association uh, Administration, CNIPA, have been releasing... Um, kind of a series of judicial interpretations and guiding opinions on how uh, things should be enforced and how judgments should be made. And in doing so, they've slowly been chipping away at their phase one IP commitments. However, most of them uh, have only been in draft form. And what that boils down to is that while China has made a good faith effort to start the process for reforming its legal IP regime, it will be a while before companies really see a tangible difference. The review process for amending laws is long, and we won't know for certain if the proposed changes really satisfy the phase one asks for some time. Now let's move on to another chapter that we thought would be relatively easy to measure, supposedly the expanding trade chapter. China agreed to purchase $200 billion worth of ag products, manufactured goods, energy, and services. This is on top of 2017 levels over the next two years. Put simply, this is a ton of stuff. This was meant in part to offset losses suffered over the last few years as a result of tariffs, and it was very politically important for President Trump. It basically became what he used to market the deal to Americans. I checked in with my colleague Jack again to see how much of the commitments had been fulfilled. The short answer is not enough, but keep in mind that the COVID-19 pandemic began wreaking havoc on both economies, especially the oil market, shortly after the deal was signed. And also that the natural growing cycle of some of the agriculture commodities means that they can't be purchased early in the year. So through June, according to analysis done by the Peterson Institute, Uh, Based on the U.S. side trade data for agriculture, 39% of the year-to-date 2020 target. For manufactured products, it's 58%. uh, And for energy, that's 22%. Uh, For services, uh, the data lags a bit, but because of how COVID-19 hit travel and education 
very hard, which are major sources of U.S. services exports to China, it's probably safe to say that there's China is lagging in those purchases as well. Uh, there, are, there are a number of reasons for the, this delay. Um, you, you know, top among them, uh, how COVID nineteen has impacted demand. Uh, another element is that the uh, China they implemented a tariff exclusion process for a lot of the tariffs that they have on U.S. goods, and this didn't begin until March second. With all of that in mind, is it still possible for China to make enough purchases to satisfy its commitments by the end of the year? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it's possible, uh, at least pro- probably not in energy, but at least in the other areas. And I don't know that the two sides would scrap the entire agreement if the only thing that was not fulfilled was energy purchases. Chinese officials continue to say that they will meet their 2020 targets. And uh, from our conversations with U.S. trade officials, they they, they believe that these targets are still achievable, um, with, with the exception of energy, just because of the Uh, price environment we're currently in. Just as important as the specific commitments that we've just discussed, I wanted to learn about the political significance of the deal. Claire Reed has extensive experience negotiating trade with China. What was your first impression of the deal when it was first released? Uh, I think the phase one agreement created a series of incremental changes across a wide spectrum of the Chinese economy. I don't think it was possible to get China to move on a, on the fundamental structural issues in their industrial system. So phase one agreement did not achieve any radical changes. And in the process, of course, there was a lot of pain for U.S. economy, including small and medium-sized enterprises from the tariffs. But I don't think the phase one agreement was a waste by any uh, stretch of the imagination because um, I think it achieved incremental progress on a lot of longstanding market access and uh, discrimination issues and uh, moved China towards strengthening a number of its laws. Those those were all very, um, very helpful. And as someone who uh, negotiated for many years with China, it was actually gratifying to see such a large number of the issues that we've been pushing on for so long actually seem to have breakthroughs. For China, I believe that every single change could be pitched as actually being very good for China's economic development and not harmful to China's fundamental interests. But I think another dimension that's very important to look at is the fact that it allowed a pause in the trade hostilities because there was this escalation of harmful, short-term, retaliatory measures on both sides of the Pacific. And I think that that continued escalation was very problematic. What I felt really was kind of too bad about the Phase 1 deal is that it didn't create very much momentum for any Phase 2 in terms of the idea that there were other issues on the table that were important and that were not resolved and that could have been tackled in phase two, even if we couldn't eliminate all the state-owned enterprises in China. So I thought that was too bad. I also thought it was too bad in some ways that while China really started paying attention to uh, the United States and the concerns that we had, that it didn't, the the whole process didn't cause China to change its fundamental mindset about its 
role in its economy or its actions going forward. Rhetoric on the phase one deal from the Trump administration has been hot and cold. At one point, the president's trade advisor, Peter Navarro, even declared the deal was over. That was walked back shortly after. What can we make of what seems like these sort of love-hate feelings about the deal? (laughs) I think it's extremely difficult to, uh, it's extremely difficult to determine uh, what Trump's reactions are going to be to a particular event in terms of consistent policy line. Uh, It feels to me as if the president's never really been that interested in China policy change. Uh, he, He gets excited about ideas that are kind of catchy and can can give a sense of controversy. So the trade deficit, issues that, that may be focused on a domestic constituency in a domestic election, you know, selling more U.S. goods and um, gaining the farmer's loyalty. So I feel as if his focus has always been very political. So the, the selling ag goods is good for um, the farmer constituency and making sure the stock market doesn't drop precipitously is good for his overall messages on the economy. With regard to USTR, I feel as if USTR really has had a kind of steady-as-she-goes approach, trying to be sure that we get what the agreement says because that's required for our credibility. And it also will allow us to make progress against some of the, the market distortions that China has in place and demonstrates U.S. strength of purpose. And I think USTR, having participated, led many of the negotiations on many of the issues that did make progress, understands the value of that progress. I think there are other elements in the administration, the China hawks, that are very focused on national security and may not be as interested in ameliorating trade conditions. They're more concerned about the fact that they may feel that the United States, in fact, has been behind the eight ball and too naive in understanding where national security threats are going to appear in the future, that they're not going to be you know, military uh, forces massed on a border ready to shoot you, but they could take the form of you know, technology mastery or domination and other kinds of um, activities that can undermine uh, the ability of another country to function. And so I think they uh, have had other priorities. And then I think the final group may be those who just want to make China a scapegoat and maybe always have perhaps folks like Navarro, where they're not really going to be interested in anything that creates a truce. And so they may be continuing to push their their viewpoint. So there's a diversity inside the administration, in other words. And, uh, and I think that accounts in some part for the different reactions that we've seen. You mentioned national security. And I'm curious to what extent the United States and China have been able to compartmentalize the trade relationship from other very important dimensions of the relationship. That's a very good question. I would say that there are maybe there are several dimensions to the relationship, but I would say until recently, there actually was a pretty 
good insulation in some ways. And when I say insulation, insulation against the the human rights issues and insulation against um, some of the national security issues. On the human rights side, I think Trump, well, we've seen from his lack of strong statements and and, uh, that they're relatively few and far between, that he's really kept far away from issues like the Uyghurs or Hong Kong or even Taiwan and... um, and he is letting others take actions on issues like South China Sea or like human rights. So he's letting Pompeo do that. Um, and he's letting the military deal with the South China Sea. And some of that may be because he's a business person and really cares quite a bit about his deal. Um, because this trade deal, if it buoys the U.S. economy and, you know, helps uh, constituents that are key for him, then then that's good. Uh, with regard to the national security issues on technology, some of the my sense is that to some extent the United States has been imitating China. So China has taken the lead in a sense on having a a very skeptical view of technology and and of a skeptical view of sort of open technology, particularly in sensitive areas. And and you know its actions speak very loudly on that score. Think of all of the you know the digital uh, players that China has blocked from its market, and you think of it China made in China twenty twenty five and. Its, its ambitions to eliminate uh, foreign technology from so many of its industries. So uh, when the United States takes actions that are kind of in that same lane, I would have to believe that China can't be surprised. And if they're not surprised, then I can see them, in a sense, having already built it into the equation and not having it... Um, have to unbalance or, or disadvantage the commercial relationship. I, I think we're walking in very um, unclear territory there, though, because, you know, if an action is taken that is unexpected or goes over a line and really seems to be very damaging to the Chinese uh, core of its economy or its sense of welfare or security, then I think we could see reactions from China. My sense is that it's been a a kind of um, uneasy, but as yet, you know, not, it's still intact. The phase one deal is still intact. The other thing I guess I would say is it does feel as if COVID and its its adverse effect on the global economy and the U.S. economy has strongly upset Trump regarding China. And so he may have required less constraint from other players uh, in terms of hitting China in these other areas. Uh, at the same time, I think the the purchases of ag goods and the, the U.S. stock market and the Chinese potential Chinese impact on both of those things do constrain uh, the scope of Trump's actions. Democratic and even some Republican lawmakers initially criticized the deal for not being tough enough on China, and this is a theme that we've seen. Back in January, Joe Biden even said that China was the real winner. How do you think the deal would fare under a second Trump administration or a Biden administration? It is hard to say what would happen, but I have to say that I would be surprised if the phase one deal were scrapped because it does represent progress on a number of fronts. By the time a new administration comes in, we'll have a better sense, of course, as to whether it was progress on paper or progress in reality. 
but assuming that there was progress, I, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that someone would would blow it up. Um, the question really that arises is, can you get more? And I think it's very hard to say what would happen on that score. As I mentioned, I think it's difficult to see how you could generate enough leverage on China to get them to make changes in their state-owned enterprises so that they're not totally in control of them, to make changes so they eliminate top-down industrial planning, to make changes so they eliminate massive subsidies to build national champions. I think that is a fundamental right now, a fundamental part of the Chinese system and I don't think sh any short-term actions by anyone are going to get China to back down from those. So the question is, what's realistic? And I don't see any president backing down from the, the developing skepticism about China's overall economic intentions and their opportunistic actions in global trade, which they will continue but I think perhaps a, a Biden presidency would focus uh, very intensively at home to try to make the U.S. more competitive. You know, there's this whole situation that people talk about where they say, you know, you don't win the race by just trying to hold the other guy back by his collar. You know, you actually have to be able to run faster. And we know there are fundamentals to becoming to being competitive and innovative. You might see more in that direction. You also might see more concerted work with allies to try to tackle some disciplines where you could potentially create um, enough uh, market pressure from a series of key global markets to push. China to change, say, the way it, it uh, provides subsidies or some of the behavior of its state-owned enterprises and issues related to, you know, excess capacity in just industries that are just overproducing with, uh, with no market consequences. Maybe, um, and maybe eventually um, a Biden administration would, you know, consider some kind of new economic alliance with like-minded economies. That will uh, take a lot of work, as we saw with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that can become a very politicized situation. So it's going to be a challenge. People often say trade is the ballast of the relationship. We've all heard this before. Do you think that this is still true? I think that the Section 301 investigation and the reaction of the business community indicates that the ballast has been getting a bit waterlogged. <laughs> so, so I think it is problematic. And, and I think it should be a bit of a wake-up call for China. I think China does see the international business community as a potential source of stability in relations with the United States. And, and I think that probably contributed to their backing off some of the hard-nosed actions against foreign business through the commitments in the phase one deal, for example. Um, also, from the business side, of course, China is such a huge market that business is going to try very hard to have a share in that market. And China knows that. 
Uh, right now, China, frankly, needs ways to bolster its economic growth and foreign investment helps. So I think there is a bit more of an effort by China to, to soften uh, its face. Uh, um, but uh, China's core interests in control are going to dictate how it operates, I think, in terms of uh, technology and any cutting-edge industries. Um, I think China's desire to be a winner includes its desire to win in relationships with business. So I think it means that business has some opportunity, some room to operate in China, but it's going to need to be sophisticated in its strategic planning with regard to what if China puts the screws on and it's going to be need to be sophisticated in its negotiations about what it gives and doesn't give because of its needs to survive, you know, with or without China ultimately. So there needs to be a kind of uh, healthy skepticism, not a naivete, and a kind of, I think, strategic planning for, you know, say a decade hence, not just the next quarter, in order to actually be able to balance what's an increasingly complicated uh, business environment. Um, you know, she's need for control is already creating new hazards, you know, the surveillance, the social credit system, the unreliable entity list, um, in addition to the pressures that go on with regard to technology transfer and the like. Um, and not only that, but now the United States is piling on in terms of expectations that it's developing for how business should behave vis-a-vis -vis China. So it's trickier and trickier for business. Business just needs to, as they say in chess, think four moves ahead. If I could do one thing, I would try to stop creating scapegoats and cool the rhetoric a bit. But that's a political reality, and I think we're not going to be able to just turn that off. It is going to be very hard, but the obvious answer is that it will be important to find quiet ways to cooperate on issues where it's clear that both countries' expertise and talent and diplomacy sometimes are needed. We know a list, you know, it includes COVID. We're not doing that well on COVID right now with them. The environment, you know, North Korea, Iran. Now, business can't participate in all of those, but if business can be self-protective, so it's not just being uh, sucked dry uh, by a Chinese system that then will throw them out, but it can find synergies that are real synergies and can create relationships that are trusted relationships. That's how we're going to, you know, weather this particular storm and try to move forward. So trying to find quiet ways to cooperate on issues where you know that both sides need each other. That can happen in the business environment as much as it can happen in the political and diplomatic and military sphere, I hope. 
The China Business Review podcast is a production of the U.S. China Business Council. You can learn more about what we do at uschina.org. Our music is by Tours. Be sure to leave us a rating and review so that other people can find us. And we'll be back soon.